So John chapter 7, starting in verse 1, says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the, now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So the after this here, it's referring to the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the grumbling, the complaining, all of this from chapter 6. We read in chapter 6 where the Passover feast was at hand. So the Passover feast, it was a spring holiday, spring festival. Uh, So now we see the Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of the Booths was one of the three Jewish festivals where it's expected, as a good Jew, you would go to Jerusalem to celebrate. The Feast of the Booths, also known as Feast of Tabernacles, was the last um, festival of the calendar year. So this would have been several months have gone by from chapter 6, from feeding of the 5,000, to now chapter 7. So months have gone by. Um, The Feast of the Booths, it took place five days after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it would last for a whole week. And so this was one of the weeks the Jews would look forward to. They, they loved this festival. This feast, if you're not familiar with it, it was a reminder of how God provided for the Jews while they were in the wilderness. So you remember, they had 40 years, they were wandering around the wilderness. God gave them manna. He gave them water from a rock. Um, he made their clothes and shoes last much longer than they normally would have lasted. God sustained his people. He is a good provider. So this is what this feast is a reminder of, how God provides, how he's good. He takes care of his people. So John is once again connecting Jesus back with Moses by mentioning this feast. So during this week, the Jews were told to make tents, um, these booths, uh, and they were to live in the tent for the entire week. So the feast of the booths, it was like every kid's fantasy. You basically got to make a fort and live in the fort for a whole entire week. Um, it's pretty cool. So if you were to travel, even like today, it's just still one, this is a festival the Jews still celebrate. If you go to a Jewish community day during this feast, which I think this year it's like October, mid-October, um, you, you would still see some of the Sukkots or the, the, the booths, these tents erected near their house. Now, if you go to like more of a, uh, of an urban city like New York, um, you would see in like Jewish communities, maybe on their condos, like the balconies, you would see these like little forts made out on their balconies, these little tents. It's to celebrate this feast. So this feast is at hand, but we see in verse 1 that Jesus would not make his pilgrimage. Well, this presents a problem. Verse 3, so his brother said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So when it says brothers, you know, sometimes the New Testament refer to brothers and sisters like how we would. Um, But here... um, and when I say by how we would, I mean like church family. Like I call you my, my family, brother, sister. But this probably means his, his actual brothers, children of Joseph and Mary. Now imagine how bittersweet it would be to be the younger brother of Jesus. Some of you are going, what do you mean bitter? Like 
How cool would that be? Well, put yourself in the shoes of being the younger siblings to Jesus, okay? First off, he's the oldest. I mean, you guys already think you're the best, right? You can tell by that comment, I am not the oldest. You know, I'm the oldest. I know everything. Now, growing up in the same house with Jesus, I'm guessing they, they knew that there was something different about Jesus, right? Just being the younger brother, uh, I couldn't even imagine how Mary uh, could parent multiple children and not treat Jesus differently. Oh, don't hit him. He's the savior of the world. Don't, you know, be, be careful. It's Jesus. And, and I'm sure the others would say to Jesus, you know, everyone knows, you know, mom, your mom's favorite. And, and so here we learn that, that not even Jesus' own family believed in him. And you could, you could see how maybe they resented him. It would be challenging to be his younger sibling. So they had probably heard for years how Jesus was going to be the king, the savior of the world. And, and so finally, like, here's your chance. Go, make yourself known. You're finally, like, let's celebrate you. We've heard all this about you. Let's, this is it. And so verse 6, Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So the phrase here, the my time has not yet come. We've seen this before already. This is one of the themes in John's gospel. It's really important. It reminds us that Jesus is in complete control of his environment. He says to them, the world cannot hate you. This might be one of the strongest statements that Jesus makes. This is, this is strong. It's, it's, it's pushing um, his, his family. I mean, the world cannot hate you, meaning... Your life looks so much like the world. Why would the world turn on its own? That's essentially what he's saying here. Now, I think Jesus would ask us the same question today. Does the world hate you? If you are an outgoing, Bible-believing, you don't have to be outgoing today. You can just be Bible-believing. If people know that you believe the Bible, you're a Christian, then yes, this world hates you, does not like what you stand for. So now, why would Jesus tell his brothers that he isn't going to the feast? And then I don't know if you caught this. Then he turns around and he goes. Did Jesus just lie to his brothers? That's at least a question you should be thinking through. I mean, we have a big problem if Jesus lied here. Now, I think to help us, there have been some scribes along the way when they're writing down, translating this. We have some actual manuscripts that have the word yet after the word feast, trying to clarify Jesus' intentions. So it would say, I am not going up to the feast yet. Um, but the text doesn't say yet. I, I think what's going on here is that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't want to go to the feast with them because it would be easy to spot him in a big crowd. Like he has this entourage. He doesn't want to go with the entourage because he doesn't want all the attention. So he doesn't go up in public, but he goes up in private. 
I think verse 11 shows this confirmation. Verse 11, the Jews, they were looking for him. So it'd be easy to find him. Oh, there's all of his family. He'd be easy to spot. So they were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? But isn't this what Jesus wanted? He wanted people to look, come after him. Oh, he does, but not in this way that they were looking for him. We see this in verse 12. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So another way of saying much muttering could be there's much whispering going on. You know, there's just a lot of talk, a lot of buzz. Jesus was gaining hype among the people. Like, who is this guy? But no one would really speak up about him. See, the fear of man often keeps you from being obedient to God. I think fear is one of the greatest weaknesses we have, one of the greatest sins that we have to overcome. Fear. We are so fearful. And a lot of times you don't even realize it's fear that's driving you. See, Jesus wants you to make much of him, yet none of these people will. And we see why. It's because their fear of man. In verse 14, it was about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. You're talking about, I mean, he went from being private to now he's, he's up front teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? There's just something different about Jesus. I mean, this would be like you're in honors class. Let's say you're even in med school. And there's a lecture going on. The guy giving the lecture, he's giving the best lecture you've ever heard. And then someone asks, you know, Professor, where, where did you go to med school? Where, where did you study and practice? Oh, oh I've never went to med school. Uh, in fact, I've never even gone to college. You know, they were astonished at his teaching. This would be like, you know, the commercial, you know, I just, I just stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. And, and, and so here... Jesus is, he's never set under rabbinical teaching, yet he is teaching as if he's the man. And we all know why. I mean, he says in verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is, is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or, from, or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood has not Moses given you the law yet none of you keeps the law why do you seek to kill me so he begins like this little play this logic back and forth with these questions he says none of you keeps the law this is man's universal problem and this is why Jesus had to come None of these people could keep the law. None of you can keep the law. I can't keep the law. Man cannot keep the law. It is impossible. Jesus says to them, Moses gave you the law, and in that law there is a command that says, do not murder. Yet, why do you want to murder me? It's proving that they don't follow Moses. They say they follow Moses, but they don't really. They just follow maybe parts of it. But some of the crowd, they're, they're, they're clueless to the intentions of the Pharisees. 
Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's, who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was really from Moses, but from the fathers, you know, Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus, he's going back to something that happened a bit ago. He's, he's using um, this lesser to greater logic here to defend what he had done back in chapter 5. If you remember this, in chapter 5, there was the man who was lame. He was by the pool trying to get into the waters when it would stir. And Jesus comes along. He tells him to get up, take up your bed and walk. The man immediately gets up. He's healed. He, he begins to walk. He's carrying his mat. And the Pharisees, they stop him. They want to know why he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Shame on you. Don't work on the Sabbath. The man tells the Pharisees that he had just been healed after 38 years of being lame. The Pharisees then go, wow, that's great. You know, praise God. He said, who is the man who healed you? The man, after finding out um, the man's name was Jesus, informed the Pharisees of this life-changing man's name. Then the Pharisees, they want to um, persecute Jesus because he healed the man on the Sabbath. Not give God glory. They, they, they were, how dare him do this on the Sabbath? So in chapter 7, Jesus shows the Pharisees how silly their accusations really are. So this is the logic he's saying. He said, you're upset with me um, for healing a man's entire body on the Sabbath. But do you not also perform circumcision on the Sabbath? So he says, follow this logic. A circumcision is done eight days after a baby is born. So if a baby boy is born on a Friday, then eight days later it would fall on the Jews', on the Jews Sabbath. So what shall they do? They have this predicament here. So the Jews, they made this allowance for this minor surgery of circumcision so that the baby boy could be ritually clean. Jesus' point, which is greater, is it greater to make the entire body clean or just one part of the body clean? So this is Jesus like, aha, I, I got gotcha. you. Because we all know it's, it would be better to heal the whole body. So then Jesus follows up with this statement, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He, he's saying, you, you guys, you're judging me for the wrong thing. You're not using right judgment. Now, our culture today only hears the first half of this command, right? Do not judge by appearance. It's probably the most quoted Bible phrase or verse today. You know, doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't judge others? See, we often forget that Jesus doesn't stop there. But he continues by saying, but judge with right judgment. I mean, why would Jesus, who is all love, tell people to judge with right judgment? I mean, isn't it mean to judge others? So why would Jesus instruct his followers to judge here? Well, maybe, just, just maybe, it is because Jesus understands that judging can be a very loving thing to do. 
You know, I, I think about, you know, um, my daughter Isha, who is, I'm going to get in trouble, eight months, almost a year, okay? Um, she's crawling over here a little bit ago. Um, and let's say she's going to an, an outlet on the, you know, there's an outlet on the floor she's going to go touch. Should I just say, ah, oh, you know, if Olivia goes to get her, to move her away, hey, you know, stop judging her. You just let her figure things out in life. No, you're going to stop someone from doing something that's going to hurt them. So this is why we speak up. But it's hard to judge with right judgment when you live in a culture that does what's right in their own eyes, right? Phrases like, you do you. You do your truth. Or that might be true for you, but not true for me. Well, isn't truth universal? It doesn't seem like it's universal anymore in our culture. Truth has slid from being objective, something you can measure, to something subjective, something you just feel. It feels right. It feels true. So it's challenging to discern what is right judgment when most people cannot agree with what right even means. And this is why I would say this verse is meant more for how the church relates to one another, you, know, you and I, more so than what it means for you to judge what your coworker was doing last night. And I'm simply basing this off what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 5, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So I think the idea is, and even this is challenging in our culture, but Christians, people of the book, should agree with what is right judgment. The standard for truth comes from the Bible, the Word of God. So that's the standard that we're all living our life from. When you say, hey, I'm a Christian, okay, I'm assuming something about you. It means these words in this book, you're trying your best to obey them. And so that's what it means, a right judgment. And so this is essentially what Jesus is doing with the Jews. He's saying, search the scriptures. Read the Old Testament. And then judge me. See if those statements are true that the Pharisees are making about me. Jesus does not believe he has done anything wrong by healing this man on the Sabbath. Which is what some of the Jews are beginning to piece together. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? It's like they're on to it. Like, hey, I think they really believe he is this Messiah, but there's something else going on here. You're something deeper. Have you ever, like, heard somebody, they say what, like, you know, they present a problem to you, and you're like, That's, that might be true, but there's something underneath. That's really not the real problem. There's something else going on here. That's what's happening here. Some of the Jews, they're piecing together that maybe the reason that they want to kill him isn't because he's claiming to be God, but that people weren't treating the Pharisees like their gods anymore. That is ultimately the problem. See, the problem is the Pharisees were becoming less important, less revered 
And this drove them crazy. They used to be big fish in a small pond, but now here's Jesus. They're not as big anymore. This is why they hated Jesus. Jesus was taking all of their fame. They loved it when people came to them. And now they're coming to Jesus. Well, they continue in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. And again, that's this is harsh. You're hearing this. You're hearing this from Jesus, and he's saying, you do not know God. You're like, what? Me? I'm a good Jew. I know God. Jesus is saying, you don't really know God. Jesus says, I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. As you can imagine, the Jews didn't receive this accusation very well. Verse 30, so they sought to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. It's like Jesus is in control or something. Isn't it crazy? They, they tried to arrest him, but they couldn't. Why? Because he wasn't ready to let them. And if he wasn't ready to let them, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, when I was a kid, I um, used to love to watch wrestling. Not, not, not wrestling, but wrestling, you know. Um, my favorite wrestler was Hulk Hogan. Uh, I loved uh, Hogan. I was one of the um, Hulkamaniacs. I was love waking up Saturdays watching. And you may not know this, but we have others in this church who are Hulkamaniacs. Um, in fact, we have other elders here in this church that are Hulkamaniacs. You can probably narrow it down that it's not Bruce, okay? Uh, so that leaves two men. Um, might shock you, but Hulk Hogan would always say to all my little Hulkamaniacs, say your prayers, take your vitamins, and you will never go wrong. Now, you know, that's not bad advice, but there's probably more advice he could give. But um, he was growing in fame. You know, uh, he was becoming like the next big wrestler. But at that time, the biggest and most famous wrestler of all time was a guy named Andre the Giant. You've probably heard of Andre the Giant. Andre, he got the name Giant because he was literally a giant. He was seven feet four inches. Massive man. Seven feet four. He weighed 520 pounds. Massive. Andre the Giant. So when Hogan began to become more popular than Andre the Giant, the, the WWE knew like, okay, we got something here with this new guy. People were watching. He was exciting. And I don't know if you know this or not, but they, they kind of script some of the stuff. Okay, I, I, I shouldn't have said that. I, I, it's probably not right of me to, to say that. But WWE, they decided to make a change that they were going to take the belt away from Andre the Giant and give it to Hulk Hogan, make him the new champion. I heard um, Hogan once in an interview saying he was, he was extremely nervous during this time. So they had, you know, they had you know, written how it was going to go and make this plan. And Now, on paper, Andre knew how it was supposed to go. But Andre also controlled reality. 
And he was a little bit, kind of, he was kind of crazy. No one really knew what he was going to do. And if Andre felt that his time had not yet come, that he did not want to not be the champ anymore, then his time had not yet come. Um, if he didn't want it to happen, it wasn't going to happen. And Hogan knew that. And um, he, he, he talks about how he was up until the very end of that last smack that it was three that he pinned him. He wasn't sure that he was going to be the champ. Now, on a far superior level, this is what it was like for Christ. If he wasn't ready for something to happen, it just wasn't going to happen. He was in complete control of his environment. His arrest and death were all a part of his plan. And we see here his time had not yet come. Yet, verse 31, many other people believed in him. This is part of why his time was not yet come. He was still gathering his, his followers. They said to him, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this, man, than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the Spurgeon among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does this mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So what they did not realize is that many of them, they would be the ones who would go out into the Spurgeon. They're saying, you know, is he going to go out among the Greeks? Once Christ dies, raises from the dead, and sends back to heaven, Jesus then, if you remember, he sends them out to teach among the Greeks. He's saying, you're, you think that's where I'm going to go? That's where you're going to go, not me. Then on the last day in verse 37 of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Feast of the Booths, or Feast of the Tabernacle, um, last feast of the entire year, on the last day of, the last of this last feast, it was known as the Great Day. So Jesus stands up, the last, last feast of the year, he stands up and he cries out. So John is trying to get our attention here. He's, he's making much. He's, this is a climax right here for us. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, you remember, this, this whole feast is about water. They, they were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't have water. God provided water through, through a rock and all these miraculous ways. So John's trying to get our attention Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is making this play on this whole feast, this time in the wilderness, with what he's there to offer. It says, their, their hardened hearts were as dry as a desert, but Jesus is offering them living water. I mean, think about a desert. A river in the desert would no longer make it a desert, Right? 
It, it might be a slow process, but at some point, that desert becomes this thriving place of life, all because of this water flowing through it. This is what Jesus is saying can happen to you. This morning, if your heart is hardened, you've never given your heart to Christ, you can have this new life. Your life can thrive, flourish. The scripture Jesus is referring to here goes back to the book of Isaiah. If you were just to sit down and read the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah talk a lot about judgment. Judgment on Judah, judgment on Jerusalem, judgment on the surrounding nations, even judgment on the world. So if you were to read straight through Isaiah, you would see like this turning point, like chapter 40. Chapter 40, you begin to see, okay, something's different about this chapter. Instead of judgment, you begin to find promises of salvation. And all of these promises of salvation, they, they are through this someone called the servant. In chapter 52, we find out that the servant is God. He's described as someone who's raised and lifted up. This is the same phrase that Isaiah uses to describe God back in chapter 6. Then in probably the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, we find out that this is a servant um, that will bring salvation by hanging on a tree, by suffering, dying in the place of sinners. So this is the suffering servant passage. Then in chapter 54, we find out that the death and resurrection of the servant allows God to offer us this eternal covenant of peace. Then you get to chapter 55, and this is where John is referencing, you know, Jesus speaking here in John chapter 7. Listen to Isaiah 55. As I just read John 7, listen, listen to this. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's a pretty interesting phrase, right? So, John 7, they're at the Feast of the Booths. On this great day, they would even pour out water, um, symbolizing how God poured out water and was provider for them. So the back, that's the backdrop for Jesus on this great day, preaching this Isaiah 55 kind of message. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Jesus saying, I am this. Just as all the Jews in the wilderness went to that water for life, Come to me today. Don't go to all the other stuff. Come to me. I will give you life. I will make per- I'll give you purpose. It will make sense to your life. Now look at this. Come, buy wine and milk without money. How does that work? You try that at the store? You go to Walmart, go to the register. Hey, I'm, I'm just going to buy this stuff. Okay, we'll just swipe your card, put money... I don't have any of that stuff. I'm just going to take this stuff. That's called stealing. There'll be somebody who follows you out the door. But here, Christ is offering something, something that's amazing. He's saying, this stuff is yours, but you don't have to pay for any of it. Now, we know what, we know what he's referencing. He's saying, I, I've paid for it all. Just take and eat. Come drink. It's yours. I've paid for it. I've run the tab. It's not going to cost you a dime. 
It's like some of you, I, I love the, like the younger congregations. A lot of you, it's, it, it's so, like, we're so different than most churches. Most churches, like, when it's holidays, like, you will go visit, you know, your, your family. But, like, we're getting to the point where, like, your parents are coming here to visit. Like, we have parents here that are visiting today. Now, sometimes that happens where they'll take you out to eat. And, and sometimes you think, like, hey, they're going to they're gonna pay for it. That's great. So you might order something different than if it was just you on your um, account. So this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, listen, I've paid for it. Get whatever you want. I'll take the lobster today. No, I'm not eating off the, the value meal today. We're, eating, we're doing it right. That's what's happening. This is a beautiful picture. Jesus, this Messiah, this suffering servant, the Son of Man, Son of God, invites thirsty people to come to him and drink. So when these people were thirsty, God provided satisfaction. Jesus is telling them that God is providing once again, just as he always has in the past. He's doing it yet again. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So I just, I just want, you to, want you to think about this. It's a crowd of people. Jesus, I mean, this is Jesus preaching. And as he's preaching, some of them go, yes, this is him. This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the one we've been waiting on all these years. But some said, I'm not so sure. That was a good sermon, but. What I want you to see here is you're going to face the same diversity at your workplace, among your friends. There's going to be some people that say, yeah, I believe what you're talking about. I, I, I want what you have. But then sometimes you're going to share the gospel and, and they're going to say, you know, I don't want any part of that. And you need to rest in that. That God has called you to be fishers of men, not catchers. This is Jesus preaching right now, this sermon, to these people. And some believe and some don't. Okay, so if Jesus is preaching and it's not convincing them all, what do you think about your ability to convince people, okay? So, and you don't see like Jesus stressing. He, he just, he's got a plan. Some of these people here probably will become his followers, like even earlier, like his brothers that were like, uh, you know, not following you. The book of James, James was one of his brothers. James didn't follow him early on, but he did later. And so, all in God's timing, just keep praying for that person, keep sharing the gospel. But some said, has Christ not come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among uh, the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, 
No one ever spoke like this man. So here, you know, they're even in awe. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of those uh, um, of the authority or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus, we know that name, right, from, from chapter 3. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, one of the most important of the Pharisees. Um, and we see here, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. There's a point where there's just some people, they just, they've hardened their hearts, made up their minds. And there's this group here, that's where they are. See, the irony here is that the masses who are supposed to be scripturally illiterate are the only ones who have a clue of Jesus' real identity. The ones who had been trained and studied, gone to all the schools, they're the ones that's missing it. Do you see the irony here? You can have all the head knowledge in the world, but if you do not submit your will to the Father's will, then you are spiritually immature. The Pharisees had all of the head knowledge. Many of them had the entire Old Testament memorized, okay? Not a few verses here and there. They had memorized the entire, what we would call the Old Testament. They had all the head knowledge, but their heart was far from God. Sadly, there's too many Pharisees in the church today. People who could win a sword drill or Bible trivia, but man, they just don't love their neighbor, show compassion to others. And honestly, if your coworkers knew you went to church, they would be shocked, or they would say, I would never want to go to that church. See, Jesus uses the Feast of Booths as an illustration of the gospel. See, during the feast, the Israelites, they, they would give up their comforts. They would give up their, their homes in order to remember God's salvation. They, they, they would remember, you know, they would live in tents to remember how God saved them from slavery. They let go of what they had and trust that the Lord would provide for that week, whereas the Jews did for those 40 years. This is a picture of the salvation that God is offering to you today. You and I must give up self-reliance and selfishness. We must turn away from idols, idols of comfort. We leave it all behind and trust that God is enough. Is that you today? Jesus is offering you living water. But you've got to give up all the things that you're chasing after that you think is going to satisfy you. You can't have it both. You've got to just stop believing this deception and say, yes, Lord Jesus, I want you and you alone. Only you can satisfy. He's offering you the same invitation today that he offered to those people in that crowd that day. Come, drink, and be satisfied.
Let's pray as the band comes back up. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, um, this Messiah, this suffering servant who paid our debt because we could not keep the law. And Lord Jesus, you paid it all. You didn't pay some of our tab, you paid it all. You lavished upon us your riches. So may we come and be satisfied in you. May we stop searching for other things. Lord, I pray you'd help us to not be deceived by the evil one when he dangles things in front of us, to think that that thing will satisfy us. May we just keep coming back to you, to the well that never runs dry. And may we drink and be satisfied. Lord, help us to, uh, to be faithful this week, to share that good news with others uh, that you offer it to everyone. So may we go out of this place, may we go into dispersion among the Gentiles, among the Greeks, and preach this good news of you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.